Geopolitics and Empire is joined by prolific researcher Alison McDowell of WrenchInTheGears.com. She has been covering all things related to the Great Reset, Fourth Industrial Revolution, or what I prefer to call Fourth Reich, AI, biosecurity, VR, AR, social credit systems, digital currencies, and much more. Thank you for joining me, Allison. And how has life been for you and what I will call the upside down or the new abnormal? Well, I mean, on the one hand, it's it's terrible. <laughs> on the other hand, it's actually like a year into this and like being grounded and in, in connecting with other people. Like recently, it's it's gotten better in terms of feeling like I have some agency and things. So I've I've connected with like a group of folks in New York City who are fighting the Excelsior Pass there, who are really open to sort of interrogating things beyond just the biosecurity state, but how it interfaces with the financial apparatus and and other aspects of things I've been researching. So I'm kind of excited this summer we're, we're talking about doing like a bunch of field visits to kind of surface this empire in, in Manhattan, which is exciting. So that part feels good. Um, just still navigating it is really problematic. And I would say like, even within personal relationships and family relationships, it's still really hard. Um, and I've, I, I've been critiqued of late by people who are like, it's just too stressful living with you. <laughs> you know, can't you compartmentalize this and like set it aside? And I'm like, well, it's kind of the whole world right now. So um, it's sort of the two sides of, you know, the, the same coin, I guess. Yeah, I can definitely re relate to that. Uh, before I get to my first question, I just wanted to, make a brief announcement for listeners that I, I'm betting that this interview may be pulled from uh, YouTube and garner uh, geopolitics and empire a second strike. So it will be on Odyssey, BitChute, Brighton and on the audio podcast ecosystem. So I'm asking listeners to subscribe to my email list and my telegram to keep in touch, not to mention MeWe, Minds, Gab and Float. And please bookmark the, the, the non-YouTube version of geopolitics and empire where you can continue viewing when the YouTube channel is terminated. Uh, I know James Corbett just got taken down a few days ago. So, And also just a quick note, I'll soon be out of a job, but I'll be dedicating myself full-time to geopolitics and empire. And so for that to be possible, I'll be asking for more donations and I'll be offering a very affordable monthly subscription report I'll be producing. So stay tuned. Uh, Allison, well before they pulled COVID, the COVID-1984 card, You've been covering, yeah. you know, this this global dystopian Death Star technocracy that is before us. I've had a number of guests on who have examined this techno feudalism, each from their own unique perspective, and you know, which when, when brought together, I think brings us a better understanding of what in the heck is really going on. What I'd kind of like you to do in this hour or so um, is kind of take a step back and have you give us this big picture outline of. What is going on from your perspective? And then fill in some of the blanks from there and map out the dystopian uh, road ahead. I personally have a biblical worldview, which has led me to be expecting kind of this course of events for decades, as the Bible implies kind of a move toward a global dystopian regime. I just never imagined events would be accelerating as they have been. Uh, some markers we have in history are the 1930s technocracy incorporated movement, right, that Patrick Wood talks about, uh, the 1970s Trilateral Commission, the Third Industrial Revolution, which would be the digital uh, or internet revolution. And so my kind of view is that the sinister and nefarious intent has always been there from the beginning, you know, built into the system. Uh, I liken the World Wide Web to a spider's web, where for the first two decades, we've been pulled into it. But now we can't move. And here comes, you know, the Black Widow uh, spider. So could, could, could you give us your take, you know, on what is this techno feudalism and, you know, what are its its goals? 
Yeah. So, so my framework, just to let people know, I'm based out of Philadelphia here in the United States. And so the lens that I use is a little bit different from other folks. And, you know, I actually came into all of this as a parent in the public schools. And so find following money and power. So I have a kind of a non-traditional path than people who've been either in the um, sort of the geopolitics angle or looking at sort of the secret brotherhoods or, you know, different things. Like my thing was really, I was just like, why are they closing our schools? And then it just, it all starts to unravel. So being that I'm grounded in Philadelphia, there, there's a certain sort of mythology of the city. And, you know, I see you know, the liberty aspect, the constitution and, and that sort of thing. And, you know, at the time that I was coming to this awakening about what was happening in the school districts, I actually had um, some people that I were connect. I was connected with who taught me a lot about political economy because that really is what is driving this: is this shift towards a post-human world, really a world that's run by these, you know, th- th- this plan. And I'm not saying it's going to necessarily happen, but this imagining that there is a future world that is largely um, mechanized, that is like a planetary computer, and that natural, non-synthetic life will be sort of a subset or perhaps fully eliminated in this this future that that these crazy billionaires are imagining. Um, but that like there's the mythology of Philadelphia in the the, the liter, you know the liberty aspect in that when George Washington you know, he was in Philadelphia before the president's house was built in Washington, D.C., and he he was angling on how to keep his people enslaved in a city of free blacks. And so, like, my understanding of more like a black radical tradition, like a liberation policy of Philadelphia, we, we've always had the myth of, of what it meant. And then if you dig b- beneath the surface, there are also these pretty amazing resistance movements and that, you know, everything from, you know, you know, John Africa and and move and the Black Panther movement and John Coltrane. And, you know, there's sort of the flip side. There's the standard mythic narrative, um, which which feels good in some respects. And then there's the 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 alternative, the counter narrative. And I feel like when we're thinking about biblically, that the world is sort of coming to terms with a great point of reckoning. Like there is this reckoning point of um, like what the history really was, like what the harms really were. And beyond the idea of enslavement now translating to possibly like the digital enslavement within this web, the sensor network web, is that um, it was also about dispossession. And in that respect, the other great reckoning is what was done in North America or, you know, Turtle Island to indigenous people. And so in many respects, I see that the whole Agenda 21, uh, the push towards megacity, um, you know, containment and dispossession off the land is very closely equated to what we did, what U- the U.S. empire did and its inland empire to original people in terms of removing them off their culturally connected lands and removing access to food, making them dependents on the state and then taking their children <laughs> and, and perpetrating all of these things. So there's like a history in that that is this continuum that as I see, you know, I, I just wrote a piece today about a f- smart housing, like wraparound services for affordable housing, where the housing and your wraparound services become your surveillance mechanism. And that, to me, it feels very much directly connected to the, the reservation systems and where instead of physical containment, now we're looking at uh, geofencing and biosensor, you know, surveillance, that sort of thing. So that is my framing is that we're in this moment of of reckoning that is almost a spiritual engagement, but 
the other piece that I kind of come at loggerheads with a little bit is that this is a global um, restructuring of global power. And so I was listening to a really nice podcast with um, uh, uh, Tessa Lina and uh, Stephen Newcomb, I believe his name, and Doctrine of Discovery. And he was talking about like the doctrine of domination, that really it goes at least as far back to you know, the doctrine of discovery, this idea of accounting, maritime trade, global supply chains in human capital, that these global impact markets that are coming online, which is something that is less broadly discussed by a lot of people, it's sort of spoken of broadly as like digital slavery or digital currency or feudalism, but there's a very specific apparatus that that is attached to this that very few people are speaking of, which is namely human capital bonds that are going through the world banking system that are tied to the World Economic Forum and the uh, United Nations Sustainable Development Goals and these digital identity systems. Like there's a very specific apparatus that is in play um, through the Global Impact Investment Network and the Impact Management Project. It's all framed as ESG investing, impact investing, that sort of thing. So yeah, this is all rolling out. I see it as a colonial project. I see it very much as like literally the next inland empire is our biological function. Like the next colonization is biocomputing. <laughs> and 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 you know, if in the end in this reckoning we understand artificial intelligence as like the end game settler colonizer in which all of humanity is the target, then what we actually need is a global reckoning around empire writ large and to from a principled understanding of that unite across the globe for a world that maintains natural life and and that means and uniting with the people of china uniting with the people of brazil uniting with the people of south africa like all of us because it is a domination power and that domination is coming in the form of global financial capital whether that be you know softbank or jack ma and alibaba or the vatican bank or you know, Pierre Omidyar or Google Alphabet, that is the power structure. And it's, it is global. I mean, it's largely, there's a huge component that's connected to, you know, Silicon Valley and Boston. A lot of people are pointing fingers at Beijing and China, but it's like, we're the ones that develop the credit scoring. <laughs> like, you know, so pointing fingers and saying those terrible Chinese, that terrible Chinese thing that's coming. It's like, no, we actually built it. So like it was further weaponized, you know, and and if they're all, the, the players at the top are all collaborating in this intention of trapping the rest of us in the spatial web to the point that we, we lose our, our ability to be natural beings. And that's to me what this big game is. And when I came into it before the past year, I really, I was up to speed about poverty management. I was up to speed on technological surveillance. I was up to speed on these impact markets. I was not at all up to speed on transhumanism, <laughs> nanotechnology, and, you know, the biotech elements that was well beyond me. And there are people who are far more knowledgeable about that. But if we're understanding as a spiritual engagement, that that is what pivots. It's at, at the point that it becomes not just about a human capital bond finance project, but about actually turning you into a cyborg um, biocomputing programmable matter entity, then that becomes a spiritual engagement. And so, you know, looking to what's happening in India with the farmers and many of whom are of Sikh faith, where you are on your land as children of the earth who are connected to a natural source, that's the power. Yeah. And I would uh, agree with you when you, you know, use the example of the native Americans. And I've heard other people say that on social media, you know, they're going to make native Americans uh, of us all. Uh, it's, it's a planetary scheme. Um, and so, so, so yeah, that, that's quite frightening. And I forget what else I was going to say you commented on, but anyways, I'll, I'll uh, move on. Um, so, 
I guess a lot of these buzzwords will pop up as we talk. You know, you mentioned social impact yeah. bonds. I had a question on that later on, digital currencies. But I thought maybe we could start with, and they all kind of merge into each other, these ideas. But uh, object. Yeah. yeah. And so perhaps we could start with, you know, you cover gamification. So I was in the past, you know, a huge fan of video games. And I, I passionately applied gamification in, in the classroom with great success yeah. where I have been teaching. And I was even going to start using virtual reality, you know, next. And so I had been naive and optimistic regarding Klaus Schwab's views, the World Economic Forum and his fourth industrial revolution up until COVID-1984, right? So I thought, you know, years ago, I thought, oh, you know, this kind of stuff sounds cool. I was kind of optimistic, all this new technology. But then the mask came off, you know, as we've seen with COVID-1984. <laughs> and we've seen, you know, Klaus Schwab, I call him now Cobra Commander, Klaus Schwab. And so now, now I see that they basically want to turn the whole world into one giant video game and gamify uh, the planet, which I think in essence is the same as the social credit uh, system. I mean, there are all these different kind of synonyms. And, you know, this means, as you said, the classification and commodification of, of everything, of every, of every atom on the planet, every dead and living thing uh, on the planet. So perhaps we can start, you know, with this, this gamification uh, of us. Well, so, so just to be clear, so my background is in art history and historic preservation and cultural landscapes. Okay. So, and I don't like computers and I don't like economics and I don't like most of these things that I've had to try to figure out to do this. So I don't claim deep expertise, but this is sort of how I'm understanding it. So if the sense is that for capitalism to continue, it must always grow, right? There has to be a growth factor involved. Um, Right now, we have so much wealth that is concentrated in the hands of this very small group of individuals. There really is no way for the rest of the world to consume enough, like consumer culture, to maintain the global economy. So there have to be the new, new uh, innovative financial instruments to keep the game going. In the last time, 10 years ago, that was the housing bubble and the housing crash. And then what is coming now under the guise of social impact finance is essentially to turn human beings, like equal parts are sort of a Venn diagram as human beings and the natural world into debt instruments. And so as terrible as it was for people to lose homes and like never get out from under the gig economy and, and all of that, like 10 years ago, the wealth has become even more concentrated. And so now this sort of the next big short is going to be um, packaging people as like your relationship to the state will change. And this is connected to the shift towards e-government, electronic government, open data government, big data government, that your relationship will be as a, almost as a debt, uh, a debt commodity on the state. And that debt will be something that maybe is pre-crime. Like it hasn't even happened yet. It hasn't even been realized your debt in terms of your needing access to education or healthcare or housing or food assistance or medical treatment or substance or mental health services, the big tech version will simply predictively profile you into any number of problems, even if you haven't actually done anything yet, based on your genomics, based on your parents, based on your zip code, based on whatever data that they can accrue, even on unborn children, and make this future reality to construct it as a cost offset for these debt finance products. And that is what pay for success finance is. It started out as social impact bonds. So this is sort of what is unfolding now. And 
that is the one piece of it. The other piece is that the world is finite in terms of our ability to consume product, right? Like I'm not Malthusian in any respect. I, I, you know, I, I don't buy into that argument, but at the same time, the level of consumer culture, like even if you look at what's gone on with the material products that have gone on with the past year around health, right? The disposables and all of the, the huge tremendous environmental impact on that. Um, that can't continue. There is a finite resource base on the earth. So for the game to continue, it goes in. And I think that's what most people on the left haven't quite gotten is that it's become gamified. And within a virtual world or a mixed reality world, they can continue to fragment um, representations of life and behaviors um, infinitely. Like they could sort of like totally make an individual person through multiple avatars, like schizophrenic and then like digitally schizophrenic and then create revenue streams off of all of your different product lines, which we have a certain extent now, like you may have social media presences, you might have a professional one, you might have an individual one, you might have one like if you're a gaming person, like you already subset your identity in certain ways in digital media, but they're coming up with ways of of like generating profit on all of that. So the world is virtual and the gaming industry is a huge part of that. Um, Like the Entertainment Software Association and it's being built. And then the crazy thing is, is like we've seen, and this is my perspective from this as a parent in the public schools, a shift to STEM, science, technology, engineering, math. Like, you know, who cares if you can read a poem or write a book or do any of these things? All we care about is if you do STEM. They need to build the virtual world. And the virtual world is in a video game. And the virtual world is the sensor networks that will be augmented reality, the spatial web. So just as they move the children off the farm into the factories and from the factories to the cubicles, the next version is, well, you'll sit in your closet and code, you know, do machine learning cleanup for this virtual world that you won't even get to live in except as an avatar. And I think that that is how the the growth will continue to happen. And within the virtual environment, most people are not imagining that the virtual world is a militarized space. We conveniently sort of set aside for the convenience of having this sort of access that this is a military technology. Um, You know, Niantic, which is one of the key forces behind augmented reality, that's the CIA. <laughs> like if someone came and said, by the way, that really cool game, like where you're capturing monsters on your phone is a CIA like data collection device, people would probably approach it differently. But there's a disincentive to actually know and look at it. Yeah, th- this is something I've been commenting to people. Uh, everyone around me, like I, I'm kind of like disconnecting from tech now as much as I can. And, you know, most common people around you are, you know, Instagramming, you know, I've I've deleted WhatsApp, I've deleted, I don't use that stuff. And they're all on their Instagram and Facebook and stuff. And like, you know, we know that the Pentagon seed funded Facebook, they seed funded Google, you know, internet, as you said, DARPA, military technology, GPS, uh, all of these things. And so, it's crazy. These are this is military technology, and now it's being weaponized uh, against all of uh, humanity. With the highest level behavioral scientists behind it too, and that's the gaming. So, I mean, if we've seen like throughout like the Obama administration and Cass Sunstein, the push for uh, like Thaler di- uh, behavioral economics, right? That, that 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 was the rise of the nudge, the digital nudge, and in the city of Philadelphia. Um, 
our former mayor, Michael Nutter, was working hand in hand with Michael Bloomberg to sort of push big data, open government, uh, impact investing, enabling legislation, like all throughout the country. And I don't know if Nutter went to Europe, but Bloomberg is over in Europe too. And we have in our city, the first municipal level nudge unit. Like they're targeting us like Philadelphia. They, they have one in the UK and then they brought it to New York, but we have the first city based and, and they pick like case studies for the pilots that like who could argue with it, right? They're like, oh, well, we just want to make a better mailing to encourage senior citizens to take advantage of uh, heating cost rebates. Who could possibly be against such a thing, right? But it's not going to stop there. Um, and, you know, one of my ways into this, Angela Duckworth, who's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania, which is at a center of a lot of this, and she works uh, with Jim Heckman, who's with the, the Nobel Prize winning guy doing the human capital equations, and Martin Seligman of learned helplessness and positive psychology. And she was doing like pitching the MacArthur Foundation on this hundred million and change. They were going to award a hundred million dollars to solve a global problem. And her entry was essentially using technology to nudge people into good behavior whether it's good financial behavior, whether it's good health behaviors, whether it's good education and training behaviors. And they had all of these partners lined up and then she didn't win the contest. So she got funded by Chan Zuckerberg, Mark Zuckerberg and his wife. So this idea of the nudge and constraining like um, choice theory, right? Like there's the approved choice and the not approved choice. And while it's not fully restrictive, it's kind of like what's coming with these medical passporting systems, right? It might not be impossible to conduct your life if you don't have one of these passports. They make it a lot harder. They're going to put a lot of friction in the system if you don't do what the the social accept, expectation is, knowing that the social expectation is something that is really an, an imperial mind frame. You know, there it's an imperial mindset. Yeah, uh, is it, is it, we're going to be basically like um, players in the, in the Sims. You know, the, the elites are going to be playing Sims uh, with us or, or Age of Empires, you know, one of my favorite video games. We're going to be the little pawns in the, in the game. Uh, and I just remembered earlier you were talking about geofencing and, uh, you know, the Native Americans were physically, you know, put on the reservations and controlled. But I think it's going to be the same thing. They're going to use the geofencing, the digital apparatus to physically lock us down in, in, in our homes. You know, if you try to leave, if this ever comes to be, we're already seeing this with the COVID rules in other places like Europe, where uh, I have some people I know in, in Greece, they can't leave their, their homes or in Chile right now. So if you try to leave your, your, your house, the police are going to come and find you and, and arrest you. So, I mean, that's pretty crazy stuff. And so um, I had another question about uh, the financial can you just say something real quick? Because I just put on. So today it's become more commonly known about biosensors, the development of biosensors to predict like viral load data or something like that. And like that's been going on. That was, you know, I knew that like the first couple months of all of this last year, but now it's coming into mainstream media. Right. So what happens if you're this is the spatial web, your smart environment, like the do, the, the lock on your door or your the lock on your smart refrigerator or your ability to get on public transit is mediated by your wallet with biosensor data, right? Like what happens when there's a, you have an implantable biosensor that's in you that's transmitting that lets you know what you're allowed to do. And it may or may not be accurate. <laughs> you know, it may or may not be actually aligned with any sort of reasonable like expectation of human life. Um, but simply that is that is what's happened. And so your, your ability to even leave your house or get something out of your refrigerator might be restricted. 
depending on your smart, what your smart toilet says. And like, it seems very black mirror, but the apparatus is, seems like it's very much in a pilot phase and can they scale it? You know, that's, you know, part of what I'm looking into lately is around affordable housing, quote unquote, and, you know, the eviction crisis and the shift towards like dormitory style or mass, you know, aggregation housing to put people on pathways back to work or mental health systems. But those can be built within these opportunity zones here in the United States, which are total tax shelters for uh, the global finance industry to roll their capital gains into a low income areas with no protection for low income people. And then they can just from the ground up, like build these new forms of smart housing. Some of it probably will just be prefab coming out of the factory and then they'll just slap it up and stack it together. And then they will pull in people who've been pushed out of their job on workforce pathways. Um, they don't get like subsidized labor because all of these people are being reskilled, right? They'll be reskilled into the smart housing industry. And I think that's something that's connected to like Habitat for Humanity and Youth Build and these things that are like, oh, look, we're going to train you to be, you know, to build housing. Well, what kind of housing exactly? Is it a jail? <laughs> you know, are we building affordable housing jails run by religious groups where your behavior is tracked on blockchain? Because if so, that's not charity. That's a yeah. jail. Yeah, speaking of those biosensors, it'd be like if you had some bad Mexican food uh, today, you know, you, you can't go out. Um, but, uh, you know, another question I had was, you know, the controversy, the, the topic of cryptocurrencies. Uh, again, my, my, oh, by the way, I was going to mention that as you're talking about this system, if people remember in March 26th of 2020, uh, a little over a year ago, there's that Microsoft patent that ends with the number 060606, which, which has this schematic of a human body connected to like a Fitbit or an implant that then goes to your smartphone, then goes to the cloud, which is kind of like the schematic of what you, what you just described. But regarding uh, cryptos, my feeling again is that the elites put out Bitcoin, uh, which I think is playing on human nature, greed, you know, and it's, it's going up in price, people are making money. And I think it's being used as a bridge to transition us to this cashless uh, society, which will, I guess, now they're talking about, you know, using the central bank uh, digital uh, currencies. You know, one of my favorite interviews that I did last year was with the Jewish historian Edwin Black, who compares oh. the the consequences of such a system to the physical ghettos that Jews were put in. He calls this new system the algorithm ghetto, where nonconformists will digitally be cut off from the system, as you've been mentioning, and you know this can translate to total impoverishment. Uh, or, or even death in, in the phys physical space because you won't be able to, you know, leave your house or, or buy food or whatever. And he says you'll. He says no, the problem will be not that the Gestapo will come knocking on your door like it did in the you know Soviet Union or Nazi Germany or, or wherever. The problem will be will where no one will be coming. You'll just be left to die alone <laughs> in your house. Uh, and so, could you talk about your take on on cryptos or the, the cashless society, central bank digital currencies? How do you see these issues? Well, so so my position on on the the, the uh, crypto generally is that there's such a high focus that m many people who are not otherwise informed are only familiar with Bitcoin or crypto. They're not understanding that blockchain as a system is meant to be much much more than that. It's not really. I mean, the currency is is a key element but it is far from the only element. And the plan is with digital identity is that everything will become a tokenized asset. 
it will be create. So the, the token may relate, have some relation to an understanding of a fiat currency, but it could also be a right. It could be a bit of information. And so their goal with, um, blockchain identity is that they everything like will about you will be tracked everything about you in the smart environment will, they will know how many times you opened your smart refrigerator and how many times like you went to the smart toilet and like all of that granular data but also your birth certificate your voting records and it will all be sold as like private it's so wonderful you have all this information about you and it's all private but MIT has this backdoor called Enigma protocol that allows for coring on encrypted data. Maybe not knowing that it's an individual person, but that they in aggregate can still query on it. So like the question then becomes, do we want to live in this spatial web, right? Knowing, having a better understanding of the gatekeeping and the limitations that are coming out on the internet right now, the censorship and, and um, the, uh, you know, Things that we're not in control of. We did we did a ceremony revoking consent outside the Council on Foreign Relations on Easter Sunday, and like I put up the video, and then they put a banner on it, like oh, just for mis like in case of misinformation, here's the Encyclopedia Britannica entry on the Council on Foreign Relations. Like by the way, so so the, our understanding of what the internet is, I think people are getting clearer in the last few months about what it actually is. Do we want that to then come out of the screen and lay over the entire world? And my, so, and because that is what crypto, whether it's the central bank kind or some wonderful decentralized local currency that you have, it, it relies on the spatial web and it relies on the, this telecommunication systems, five and 6G that, you know, unless people can tell me otherwise is, has a tremendous, comes at tremendous environmental cost. Um, the, 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 EMF, the frequencies, the rare minerals, the e-waste, like a device-based currency harms the environment and is not, like, even if it has less energy, like, unless they can come up with some system that, that they can say is, like, benefits the environment, <laughs> like, I have my questions. And I, I had spoken with someone who was actually, like, in the wellness space who was advancing, like, the good kind. And I said, well, how do you square this with 5 and 6G and what it would do to the environment? And they were like, well, you know, I can, we can go, you know, you can have a special kind of clothing or maybe a headset or something that you can wear outside to be protected. And I thought, well, I'm here for the bees. Like, if this is a moment of spiritual reckoning, where this should not be an anthropocentric framing here. This should not only be about liberation of humanity. We actually have to position ourselves of like, how are we as relatives in this web of life? Because we really kind of messed it up. I mean, the the, the, the structure of like empire capital, like this consumption has caused grave harm. So if we are going to continue to bull ahead and try to protect ourselves in some way, um, that's not the path that, that, that I choose to take. Um, other people may take that path. I mean, I guess my other question is if you're, if you're building a locally based community, um, a lot of what this web of trust, this digital trust, cause that's the code language for blockchain is about globalization and global supply chains and global trade. So to me, it makes me sort of wonder if you need it on blockchain, what is your relation with global supply chains? Are you still imagining that that's going to be a huge part of how you operate? And again, I don't, my frustration is that too few people who are operating in the space, I think are giving equal consideration to the implications of the surveillance state and the spatial web and these other elements. Because I think even if one were to pull back and create some sort of 
life outside that based in a blockchain system. The reality is, is that if it became a threat to empire, they would take care of that. I mean, they they would, it would just be taken care of. So um, for that reason, I think that there have to be a, while mutual aid and, um, you know, developing like renewing knowledges of old ways of being and being connected with land and being connected with one another and learning, relearning those old ways, like super important. Yeah. I, I totally support that. But at the same time, there have to be an equal number of people contesting it on the way down because once it locks in, I, I don't know that it's going to be easy to back out of it. We shouldn't let them just lock it into place unquestioned. Mm-hmm. And kind of to jump ahead then to, to the biosecurity aspect, um, you know, this this pandemic, which I'll call a non-pandemic, uh, just from the traditional definition of pandemic, which means a high death counts. Uh, we've seen we've seen the mortality rate doesn't uh, justify calling this. Uh, a pandemic. So this, you know, public health false flag or whatever you want to call it is ushering in this long planned uh, biosecurity state aspect of this, you know, what, what you've been describing, this kind of like technocratic government surveillance system. Uh, I'm starting to feel like I'm living in total recall or, or Gattaca, if people watch those films, uh, you know, before COVID government, before COVID governments were running countless pandemic and bioterror uh, war game simulations, kind of in preparation for this. Uh, We've had the EU preparing vaccine passports well before COVID-1984. We've had the UK health minister, Matt Hancock, working with Klaus Schwab on these things well before COVID-1984. And so it seems kind of like this biosecurity aspect is the final phase uh, almost because it's giving them this vehicle or framework uh, of control over our physical bodies and minds because now they're laying out you know we had 9-11 and the patriot act and the tsa stuff and now it's going to be everywhere we go it's going to be these um you know taking your temperature gel um all this kind of surveillance drones now are flying around uh and so and then we've got these medical uh passports that are coming and i'm wondering how much of it is related to trying to damage our health through these injections uh, or it's basically the pretext like Naomi Wolf says for the social credit system, uh, which I think you call the, you know, you link to the social impact bonds and the global digital uh, identity. uh, And then it connects to the internet of things and augmented reality. So could you comment on, you know, this biosecurity state? Right. Well, so, I mean, I feel like in some ways we've allowed technology and the life sciences to, to take over life, to reframe what life is. And, um, you know, I, a lot of the, this apparatus, the surveillance apparatus is actually embedded in Salt Lake city in Utah. And, um, you know, I went out there to talk with some people and, you know, when I was putting together my presentation, I realized that the state of Utah has a thousand life sciences companies, a thousand. That's a lot. And I said, listen, guys, you know, you have a thousand life sciences companies in in your state um, and you're hoping that this is going to be a growth economy. Right. And so what does that mean? How 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 are a thousand life sciences companies going to be profitable? And the only way is that you will have ever more. Sick people. Or you will somehow come up with a way of forcing people who are not ill to use your products. So if you create a, a, a state level economic system based on sickness, 
you're going to have more sickness. There is no incentive to heal people. The, you know, and we've known this for a while with big pharma in terms of like chronic management of chronic illness, as opposed to actually resolving problems or addressing environmental underlying factors that, that lead to illness. Um, you know, and it, it struck me that Wharton Business School is, is a center for a lot of these innovative financial products. Um, and Judith Rodin, who was the former president of Pen- University of Pennsylvania, where Wharton is based, uh, she, cre- she went to the Rockefeller Foundation and they created the Global Impact Investment Network. And the Huntsman family, which is from like the, you know, one of the richest families in Utah, uh, had ties to Penn and Wharton and they built the Wharton, like their new building, but it was like 15 years ago. And it's the Huntsman building. And so I, I finally got around to looking to see what, what their background was. And it was chemicals. It was, um, it was chemicals, specifically styrofoam, specifically like fast food packaging, like clamshells. This is the beginning. And then it expanded. They made a lot of money in chemicals and plastics. And, um, and then they use their philanthropy in genomic based cancer research. So then they got a lot of R and D and genomics, which, yeah, all of this stuff is dual use. Yeah. I'm sure some of it's about curing cancer, but a lot of it is about gene manipulation. So now they can pivot the, those developments in understanding, you know, bioinformatics and gene manipulation into biotech products. And so essentially what you're doing is you're creating value chains in environmental harm of hurting people, you know, and, and then leveraging it and keeping leveraging it. So when I started all of this, I was not aware of really, I, I had, was only vaguely aware of something called transhumanism. And I would encourage folks to look up. There's a gentleman, his name is Pavel Luksha, and he uh, was out of uh, Skolkovo, um, in, in Russia and which is like the Silicon Valley. And he is, was founded something called global education futures forum, like agenda. And so they, this is maybe six years ago when I first started and they had this foresight document that was projecting the future of education to 2035. And it was saying crazy things like, you know, pre-birth education and student genetic passports and, you know, virtual reality jail and all of these things that seem totally unimaginable. And I'm like, who is this guy? And I remember looking and like a lot of his, his talks were in Russian, so I couldn't understand all of them, but he was collaborating with MIT. He was working very closely with MIT and MIT's working on mind uploading and consciousness as well as digital currency. And, um, you know, you know, and now they're talking like, you know, minds on blockchain and idea payments and crazy things like that. But like, so there's this network and he is such a, he is a, a clearly a transhumanist. He's connected to the Life Belt Foundation. He has like a, a program called like a slide share. You can look it up, Pavelecha NeuroWeb. And they're talking about mind-body separation, right? Um, if you look at what the, the Japan Science and Technology Agency, they've got something called the Moonshot Project. And goal number one of the Moonshot Project is that by 2050, we will be free of having a physical body, uh, human body and mind in time and space that we will float around as these digital characters, um, you know, and, and bop over as a, as a, as a cartoon character and do some, you know, remote work in Brazil and then pop up to New York and visit our friends in a, a room, a digital room. And then like, and how does that even happen? And I, I don't know that they can accomplish it, but it's that they will make having a human body miserable like their intention will be that you will be chronically ill, you will be physically limited, like every aspect of being a natural human will be constrained to create these new revenue streams of digital data processing, gamified data processing as as these digital twins. 
And, you know, Japan has SoftBank. SoftBank has the world's largest innovation fund in AI and robotics that's channeling a lot of the Saudi sovereign wealth fund money. This is nothing to sneeze at, you know, that this is just some ranting of like a random academic. No, there's a ton of money behind this. And even to my mind, if they don't accomplish it, if they are pushing this, they will cause grave, grave physical and mental harm along the way, even if they ultimately do not achieve this crazy vision that the path that they're pursuing in terms of population level bioengineering, which is fundamentally a eugenics-based program, a post-human eugenics-based program, will be incredibly dangerous. And that's why I feel like those of us who can see it have to refuse it because what does that mean for children? Like there is no informed consent. What does that mean for generations coming, like the seven generations, like the children, the unborn and, and, and the sensor networks that they're putting, they're talking, Microsoft is talking a planetary computer, uh, computer simulations modeling. You know, a lot of what I was looking at early on with education was around Bluffdale, the NSA data center, also like right off the highway in Salt Lake, greater Salt Lake area. And, you know, that is framed as this data collection center, but, oh, they'll only access it if there's like a, you know, a FISA court order or whatever. I am increasingly feeling like those data centers are for digital twinning, that they're to to track all of us to build out these robust profiles that will be fed into this 6G, you know, cyber parallel universe. And I, I, I can't believe I even have to say this stuff, but people need to know, like people actually need to know that this is something that within the technology communities that is being robustly discussed, that the internet, look up the internet of bio nano things, just look like people just Google it and read the papers. This has been, this train has left the station like 15 years ago and nobody knows. Yeah. I mean, it it sounds like the matrix, you know, where everyone is just, they'll be in their homes getting some basic like food, nutrition uh, tubed into them. And then we'll be connected to the internet permanently and working as avatars or, or whatever it's it's pretty in 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 human uh just to get a little geopolitical you mentioned russia and this has been a burning question on, on my mind and i think that of a number of people i've had some guests on such as the canadian uh scientist uh, denis uh, rancourt and, and others where we've discussed this where we're wondering whether russia and china are uh sovereign and don't want to be part of this kind of great reset um, but there's other people that I follow um, on Twitter uh, as well. I, I was listening to your latest three-hour talk. Uh, Spencer is his name. He, he asked you a question in that talk, and, and we follow each other on Twitter, and he, he brings up good points where uh, I've kind of seen evidence to the contrary that suggests uh, Russian uh, and Chinese elites are in bed with these Western great uh, reset people. And you just mentioned some of these powerful uh, financial tech interests in Russia Um working together with the West on this project, which is like global. So I'm, one, I'm wondering, you know, what are your thoughts on this, whether there are some remaining, if there's any resistance to be found uh, anywhere in the planet, whether it's in the form of a national, a nation state or, or, or otherwise, or is this like, this is the new game and all the global players are, are participating in it? I don't have a lot of deep knowledge about Russia beyond Pavel Leksha, but he is a key figure in all of this. Um, On the China side, there are very close ties between Beijing and Silicon Valley. And the the human capital bonds that I've spoken about, um, you know, I believe that even back through the 70s, I mean, the technocracy, there was a test bed, there were test bed, the Asia society that were using China to to template these trials. Um, 
in collaboration with people, you know, at high levels of government, whether or not they're accepted by the regular people of China. Like it's, it's unclear to me. Um, I wrote a piece, a, a blog post uh, in January of 2019 that was called Prison Reform to Incarcerate the World, where I talked about essentially interrogating a lot of the judicial reform movements and understanding that the the prison industrial complex is a huge cost offset for these social impact markets. And they're now ready as the satellites go up and the, the, the internet of bodies comes into place that they will not be able to build prisons, you know, the world's powerful people to contain all of the people who will be dispossessed by this fourth industrial revolution if this happens the way they're imagining. And so they're transforming the world into an open air prison. You know, that's the new model is the world is an open air prison and that poverty continues to be criminalized, but not to actually put you in a, in a physical containment device that it will put you on e-carceration, electronic tracking to make, monitor your compliance. So what led me to look at that was it were these advances in technology in the uh, private prison systems, but then also in, in Foshan, China, they were tracking individuals on parole on blockchain. And so I think it's Guangdong province. There, are, there is a lot of test beds there in terms of smart city tracking, 5G, the credit scoring. But it's important to understand that it's IEEE, which is like the International Electronics and Engineering Association. It's, it's three E's and there's like electronics and engineering, IEEE. It's actually based in New York. Like they were the ones who set up like the Chinese e-government system. And so there is this very, you know, there is collaboration. Um, what high levels? It's it's unclear. But Michael, you know, they they've had education conferences, VIP kid. It's this import export idea, and really the intention is that powerful actors. We are the mineable commodity. Our life force, whether that be our biology or our mental state, is their extraction point um, of powerful people around the world. And so, and people are just not they're not aware. They understand surveillance, but they don't understand exactly how data can become a f something that is financially profitable to these global dominating entities beyond selling computers or selling cloud you know, server space or selling the sensors or selling the chips. But th th there, there is this new hedge fund game that, that is being built in. So to my perspective is that this is a game of domination that is global in nature and I see very few holdouts um, in it. Um, it's positioned and branded differently in different places. But I mean, thus far, I have not heard any government surface this idea of the spatial web and digital identity. And they talk about uh, remote robotic labor globotics and say, this is not a future we want. This is an abominable future. This next wave of globalization will be horrible for our people. And so we will not. And you know the nature of that, and this is what I'm trying to get across to people who are focused on like immigration issues. The borders don't exist for capital. The borders only exist for the masses, their physical bodies. But the idea that we can somehow lock in and protect any given nation state from what's coming, is no longer relevant once it becomes remote robotic labor. Like, you know, the idea of the call centers, the, 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 the platformed work, um, that's going to go now towards actual physical, like, you know, running factories, uh, 
you know, they talk about running lawnmowers remotely, you know, running, uh, doing hotel cleaning services through robots. So this nature of, of borders is morphing with the geofencing at the same time there will be no closing your borders unless you have some policies against remote robotics. Um, in, in, in the same way, your border based on your biosensor data might be your front door. So, so people have to unlearn a lot and they have to be willing to both let go of the identity that they had when they had like owned that information. And I think be willing to open their eyes towards like principled alliances, like if we understand that the future is one that's based on a settler colonizer mentality and that it's everyone, if we can agree that that's what it is, then we need to fight it together. And, but that takes a certain frame of mind that not everybody's there yet. I hope they can get there. Because the identity politics and the partisan stuff is not serving us well. It's serving Davos right now. It's serving Davos very well. It's not serving, it's not going to serve us well in what's coming. Unless the game is everybody just wants to give up and turn into a cartoon character. And then then you can have as many identity politics things as you want. And they can all be data mining opportunities. Yeah, I I would agree with you. I'm not not seeing much resistance uh, globally. I think Putin gave a talk to Davos virtually recently where he was kind of poo-pooing the, you know, this new wave of globalization, but then again, seeing the things that are going on in, in Russia with these other actors and how Russia is also applying a lot of the same principles they just announced in, in, in Russia. They, they might pass a law where to, to create social media accounts in Russia, you're going to have to use like your passport and IDs. And so it's like everyone's doing the, the same thing. And speaking of people getting informed and, and, and fighting back to get your take on, you know, in terms of prepping and trying to survive this uh, dystopia, you know, I, I'm kind of leaning toward the idea that going, uh, you know, apart from getting informed and trying to spread this knowledge, I'm worried about in some future where if we don't reach a critical mass and people don't just, they just kind of go along with this, you know, well, okay, what am I going to do next plan B? You know, and it's like, I think going analog m- might be the way. And I've heard others uh, allude to this, you know, kind of meaning disconnecting from the digital systems as much as you can, which, which th- these things have gone from benign, helpful applications, right? You know, like Google Maps and all of these things to dangerous systems uh, of, of control, you know, where we're going to be geofenced, you'll be banned from, you know, I was just kicked off of Patreon, right? So, so I'm talking about wow. going off grid-ish, becoming self-sustainable, having a community, basically living like man has from the beginning of time in the physical real world uh, and the nature. So this weekend, for example, I was hanging out with friends uh, and nature. It was so much fun with the kids. You know, the kids yeah. are pick- making mud pies and looking at insects and Great. stuff. And for me, it's like, I don't see anything better than the real world that, that the digital world can, can offer. And so, and then the, the alternative perspective, I visit people in the more urbanized, digitized space and, and many of them and their children are constantly on the internet, on the smartphone, sitting like zombies, watching television programming. And there's this huge contrast and i think they want us in this digital electronic concentration camp where you know the real world always has been i I don't think you can get better than that so you know what are kind of your recommendations on preparing for living uh in this authoritarian digital dictatorship uh, going forward well like i said i my position, and this is just me personally, I'm not telling other people, like I'm not in a position of saying like there's one answer for all people. Like for me, I feel called to try to share a narrative of what I see is unfolding because I think I think it 
it's helping people understand. So I know some people have said like, oh, Allison, it's terrible that you're saying, you know, you're questioning blockchain, but look, you're on Twitter. You're, you know, it, it, if I felt that it was my position to escape this thing and go underground, like I, I would have done that. And, and so for me, I feel like my obligation is to to participate in surfacing this. And right now, this is how we do it, right? Like this is, it's not great, but it's how we do it. Um, I am working with people in person in New York, which is amazing. And we've had like gatherings, um, you know, music. I have a, my friend Yvonne, like has organized these gatherings in Central Park. And just that connection is amazing. I've had people over for soup to my house, like over the winter, the social gathering, and now it's morphed into like, we're going on hikes. We too went on a hike on Saturday and like the spring peepers were out in the vernal pool. And it's so funny because there are about 10 of us and we were all just outside and clearly we didn't have masks on and, and this car pulled up and then this person got out and it was like the park ranger. And we we're always like, oh, like, you know, it is terrible. Like as adults, we were already like panicked, like about what, you know, are we going to get like called in for, you know, congregating in the park. And, and it wasn't that like the person was actually very supportive and just wanted to tell us about the four kinds of frogs that were in this pool. Cause he'd helped dig it out. And he was telling us about, you know, the pickerel frog. And so that was this natural like connection, which was beautiful. So I think you have, you have to balance. I, I don't hold anything against people who are working on developing their own um, uh, alternative communities. I, I would say, from an imperial standpoint, like I do, it somewhat concerns me that, you know, I know you're in Mexico, like there's stuff also with like indigenous and land, right? Like people who have resources going to other places and then changing their local economies based on like outsiders seeking refuge. And so how does one do that in a way that is like recognizing power disparities and stuff like this idea of like new age, you know, Costa Rican, like eco farms, but it's all people who aren't from there feels kind of weird to me. Um, you know, if it's all like semi, you know, very affluent people doing it. So there's, there is, I think if, if we're understanding this as a principled engagement, how does one do that in a way that is a good relative, you know? Um, and I'm not saying I have all those answers, but I think that there, there is that dynamic that has to be understood. Um, so, so yeah, I mean, I'm I'm speaking publicly. We have this this enterprise this summer that we're working on. I'm encouraging other people to do it too. Is um, I think they most want to frame the resistance as something that is aggressively threatening, and I think that this um, this predator energy feeds on dark energy, and so I'm kind of channeling a bunch of moms, you know, and like like earthy people like to say, like, we can refuse this on a principled place of, of love. Cause you know, even people like Michael Bloomberg and Bill Gates, like they're somebody's kid, you know, like maybe they went horribly misguided, but like, if we can um, hold space for a, a, a reckoning and for healing that that's important. And it came to me, I actually, I work at a, um, a botanic garden. And so even though I'm not a garden, a horticulturalist, like I do love you know, being on the land. And it came to my mind that the dandelion is this image for this healing summer that I want to do because we, we're, we've got this rift that people have like the paths have split. And depending on which path you're on, you feel irreconcilable with the people on the other path. And there's a lot of anger and, 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 and sadness about that. And so if we can start to talk about some of these things beyond this immediate past year, if we can start to talk about things, um, about like, do we want to live as a cartoon character? Like, what is our obligation to the bees? Like, what are, like, I think we could start 
to find spaces to knit things back together. So the dandelion was came into my head as like this unifying feature because it's joyful. It's the sun and the moon. It has the seeds that go everywhere. They get in the cracks. They like kind of disrupt like consumer suburban lawn culture. Um, they're edible, they're medicinal, and the medicinal is like a liver cleanse, which is anger and bile. And they're they're global other than Antarctica, like they're and they're cheap. Anybody so I put out a call. I have a blog post on my on word uh, wrenching the gears. If you look up dandelion manifesto, like send me your dandelions. Even if you can't come to New York, we're gonna infuse them in water and scrub the steps, the thresholds of these places of the Rockefeller Foundation and Bloomberg Philanthropies and energetically put a resistance imprint to say like, we, we stand for life, we stand for natural life. Um, and hopefully behind us are all the people working on permaculture and, you know, restoring relationships and making amends for past harm and all of those good things, like that's good. But some of us are, have to also be on the front line doing the, the, the front end work. And so that's, that's kind of how I see what my summer has in store coming up. Yeah, I thought I'd just comment on the Mexico um, thing. I'm doing it the right way. I, I became a Mexican, I'm a Mexican citizen. And uh, I know other there are other foreigners that there's those two approaches where they're coming in and hanging out with other foreigners. But I, I've seen other foreigners who have, um, you know, they've learned Spanish and they're living with the local indigenous community. And so they've integrated with the locals. And so I think that that's the correct way to do it. And I'm, I'm tending, I'm Mexican now and most people I hang out with, uh, with are, are Mexican. And I think that's, the the better way to go than to make these like enclaves of, of expats. Um, so that, that's yeah. just my, my take on, on Mexico and uh, any final then thought for us. I mean, I think as dire as things feel, and like I said, I, I have a young adult child who is, I think it's very hard. It's very hard to actually look at this. And so, and it causes a lot of angst, but I don't think it's, it's going to end as us all in the video game. I do believe that they will overreach, you know, have a, have a friend we're, we're working on this, um, the platform to do the dandelion, you know, revocations called inspiredgroundproject.com. And, and he also has another platform called Silicon Icarus. And um, it is like Icarus, like these people, these Silicon Valley, these, these transhumanists, they're going to fly too close to the sun and the wax is going to melt. They're going to drop into the ocean at some point. Um, you know, and I have friends who are like, we've already won. This is the first, we've already won. We just have to do the work. We actually have to do, make the effort. We can't look away, but we have to sort of walk through. So I just, I want to encourage people um, to, to be able to look at it and refuse it. And, and I think that there's a great power and, and what people need now is agency. And even if you can't go out and build your own community, like even if you can't go out and start a farm tomorrow, like you actually you know, if you send me an email on my blog and you're like, I'm in this place, like, is there anything here? Like you can go and even just by yourself say, this is not okay by me. Like drop a, drop a handful of dandelion leaves on there and just say, I don't, you don't have my agreement because I think a lot of this is about a lot of the nanotech, a lot of the biotech it's a signals intelligence. It's both military and financial signals intelligence. There's waveforms out there. And I think that, that putting some alternative energetic presence into that equation is something that can be very powerful. And if people haven't read A Wrinkle in Time, that's from the 70s, Madeleine Langle. Like in the end, it's like quantum physics and faith and math and computing. It's really, it's kind of a quirky book, but in the end, love wins, you know? And so I think um, the, the, the healing and mending is, is the stuff we need to work on this summer. Healing and mending and, and self-sufficiency in, in, in a principled way.
All right. Uh, you're, uh, you're on Twitter. You have your website, wrenchinthegears.com, as well as you have a Telegram channel, uh, which I think is also the same, Wrench in the Gears. Is there any other place uh, to follow your, follow your work or to support you? I'm still you? on YouTube at the moment. I don't really talk about the stuff they're censoring. So it's Allison McDowell YouTube. You can, it's kind of a crappy YouTube channel. It's a lot on there. You know, there's definitely like a lot on there. So yeah, I'm Philly 8, at Philly 852 is on Twitter. So um, yeah, join in the conversation. Um, you know, it's all unfolding and it's global and you know, th there's a beautiful community ar around this that are, are people who increasingly are getting it, you know? All right. I urge people to bookmark wrenchinthegears.com or you can subscribe uh, via that WordPress website and, and you get each uh, new post that Allison publishes. Uh, I'm subscribed and also subscribe to Allison's Telegram channel. Keep up the amazing work, uh, Allison. And I hope we speak again soon. Thanks for being on Geopolitics and Empire. I hope you enjoyed this Geopolitics and Empire podcast interview. The website is geopoliticsandempire.com, and I encourage you to sign up for the free email list through which you can receive an update of every new podcast, as well as a long list of key news headlines once a week. We're being heavily censored. YouTube has deleted some of our videos, and we currently have one strike. Patreon has terminated our account. Facebook has restricted our page, and Reddit has been the leading posts. Our favorite social media channels are Telegram and Twitter. The best places to watch the podcast beyond YouTube are on Odyssey, BitChute, and Brighteon. The best places to listen to the podcast are on SoundCloud, Apple, Spotify, Google, or on any other podcast app. To help keep this podcast alive, leave a review on Apple Podcasts and wherever else, subscribe to all our platforms, and leave a donation if possible via Subscribestar, PayPal, Bitcoin, or Ethereum. You can also find us on MeWe, Minds, Gab, Float, VK, LinkedIn, and Instagram. Thanks for listening.